Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's been a while, but we are back in 1 Samuel after taking a lengthy break for the holidays. So I'm going to read our passage for us this morning, and then, as always, we'll take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. It is a lengthy passage, but we always want to take time to read God's Word together and hear from Him this morning. So let's read 1 Samuel 9, and then we will pause and pray And ask for the help of the Lord. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shaalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is, behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. 
For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would use the truth of your word this morning to help us to understand more of who you are. Father, as we have already proclaimed, but just to say again, we acknowledge that if not for the work of Christ in our place and the spirit that you have sent to dwell within us, we will be cut off from this very truth that we are pursuing this morning. And so we're thankful that you have, by the power of your spirit, awakened us to the truth of your word. And Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to convict us of sin. We pray that you would use it to encourage us. We pray that you would use your word this morning to help us see your sovereign hand over all things, over our lives. I pray that you would use your word this morning to prepare us for this new year to trust you, that you are at work in our lives, even when we don't understand it, even when we can't see it. Father, I pray that you would use this passage to remind us that you rule over all things. And so, Father, we pray that you would do among us what only you can do, that you would do above and beyond what we could ask or think, that you would protect us from being led astray, that you would guide us into all truth, and that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' worthy, glorious name. Amen. Well, many of you already know this, but I'm sure there are many that don't that are new among us. I grew up in a church where my father was the music pastor, or as they called them in those days, the minister of music. And it's the only church I ever knew until I left for college. He was there for a, a long time. He passed away when I was 15. At that point, he had been serving in that church for 17 years. My mom and my brother and his family are still in that church that I grew up in where he served until he passed away. So I have a special connection to that church. And a number of years ago, this was quite a number of years ago, but the church created a blanket that has pictures of the various structures from the history of that church. That particular church is over 200 years old. It's been there for a long time. And so there's been all kinds of different buildings in their history. And so they commissioned this blanket to be created, to be woven. And 
It has something like five or six buildings on the blanket. We have one of those blankets at our house. And every time I look at it, I'm amazed to see how, and I know it happens all the time, but just to think about how a machine and even some people historically by hand can weave together all these different colored threads to create this beautiful picture on the front of the blanket. And it is impressive to look at from the front. But when you turn it around and look at the backside, it is a jumbled mess, right? There are threads all over the place. It's hard to make out what all of it is. The colors don't make any sense. It just, it's not attractive at all to look at it when you look at the backside of the blanket. Your opinion about the blanket is determined by which side of the blanket you're looking at in any given moment. Well, the reality is in the same way, God is weaving together the beauty of the story of your life through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. And one day, that tapestry that God is creating of your life will be a beautiful sight to behold when you will be looking at it top down from God's perspective. You'll see the meaning of every color of every thread that he pulled through your life. And it will all finally make sense. But the reality is that viewpoint from the top of the blanket from God's perspective, is rarely seen in this life. Most of what we see is the underside of the blanket, the backside of the tapestry. We see the mess of the threads, the colors that don't make any sense, the blobs that we don't make out any kind of distinct shape, that we don't understand what in the world that thing is that God is doing in our life. And at times it can look like just an ugly, jumbled mess that doesn't make any sense at all. So the challenge of walking with Jesus is trusting the Lord's skill to weave our lives for the glory of God, even if we can't see the picture that he's creating. Now, one of the ways we can build our confidence that God is in fact doing that is by looking to the truth of his word, to looking at how he has been at work in the lives of his people for millennia. And he has faithfully, throughout history, been sovereign over the lives of his people. It's what Romans 15.4 tells us. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's why we have the scriptures. It's one of the, reason, one of the reasons why we have the Old Testament, so that we can look there and, and endure and be encouraged by how God worked in their lives. It increases our confidence in the Lord's handiwork and the picture, the blanket, the, the reality of our life that he's constructing, even if we can't understand it from the perspective we have here in our lives on earth. And one of those encouraging places of God's word is here in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Because here in this chapter, the veil is pulled back and we're allowed to have a glimpse of just how God can weave those threads together to create a beautiful, unexpected picture in our lives. I mean, the veil is pulled back on what seems to be an ordinary, frustrating three days in Saul's life. But as the Lord reveals to us what he's doing, what we actually see is that it was the glorious work of the Lord all along. And so I pray that as we see the veil pulled back on how God was at work in Saul's life, we will be reminded that God is no less actively involved in the events of our lives. And even through the seemingly ordinary, mundane, seemingly random events of our life, God is weaving our story together for our good and for the glory of his name.
So our sermon for this morning will be structured a little different than I normally would because what I want us to do is simply review the story of 1 Samuel 9, but we're going to look at it from two different perspectives. We're going to look at it from the perspective of here on earth, kind of looking up to the jumbled mess and then see the divine perspective looking down that God was weaving together all along. So we'll view the underside of the tapestry first, and what we're going to see is a son looking for some lost donkeys. But then when we look at it from God's side of things, we will see God sending a son to be anointed as king. So let's begin by looking at that underside of the tapestry that often doesn't make any sense as a son looks for lost donkeys here in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. This passage begins as a rather ordinary story about a wealthy man who loses his donkeys one day. We don't know how those donkeys were lost, right? How do you lose donkeys? Well, they wander off, they're stolen, we don't know, but whatever, however it happened, they wake up one day and their donkeys are gone. In fact, if you stopped at verse 14 as you read 1 Samuel 9, you would be left scratching your head as to why many of these details are given in this story about their wandering about from city to city. But let's just take our time and walk through what this story is and what it looked like from Saul and his servant's perspective. The beginning of chapter 9 tells us that Kish was a wealthy man from the tribe of Benjamin. And this wealthy man, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul, who will become, of course, a rather well-known figure in the Old Testament. We're told that Saul was a handsome young man, apparently the most handsome in all Israel. Now, we believe that God's word is inspired, so he must have been, right? Objectively, Saul must have been the most handsome guy in Israel. That's a lot of pressure if you ask me, but okay, this is what the Bible says about him. He's the most handsome guy in Israel. He's taller than anybody else in Israel in his time. And one normal, ordinary day, Kish's donkeys go missing. No one could find them. They probably looked all over the place in the immediate vicinity, and they were nowhere to be found. Now, we should pause here and remind ourselves that this is not insignificant, that donkeys were a significant part of one's accumulated wealth. They were important. They helped people accomplish everyday tasks, whether it be agricultural or carrying heavy loads or whatever it may have been. Donkeys were worth money. They were important. And that is seen in the fact that he sends his son Saul to go find them and doesn't just send a random servant out on the way, though, of course, he does instruct Saul in verse three to take a servant with him. And so verse four gives us some of the details of their journey as they set out. It says they pass through the hill country of Ephraim. They look all around there. It's a hilly country, not a pleasant hike, right? They're looking all over the place trying to find these donkeys. They cannot find them anywhere. So then they pass through the land of Shalisha. They can't find the donkeys there. They're looking everywhere. They simply cannot find them. They did not find them. And then they pass through the land of Shalim, but the donkeys weren't there either. And then the end of verse 4 says they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they didn't find them there. Now, we don't know exactly how wide the geography was of all of these places because some of these areas were not certain exactly where they were, but we think roughly the land of Benjamin itself, that section of Israel probably is something like 24 by 12 miles. This was a lot of territory to cover. They were literally walking all over the place just trying to find the donkeys. <laughs> And they could not find them anywhere. We're told later in the story that it was three days because by the time they meet Saul, he says, your donkeys were lost three days ago. 
They are desperate. They cannot find them anywhere. And in fact, verse 5, Saul says to his servant, look, we've got to head back home. We've been gone so long that my father is going to start worrying about us. He's going to think something has happened to us, and he's not even going to care about the donkeys anymore because he's going to think that we have been killed or gotten lost or we're suffering in some way. So we need to head back home. It seems that all is lost. We're not going to be able to find these donkeys. But verse 6, the servant has one final idea. They are at their wit's end. They don't know what else to do. And in verse 6, Saul's servant says to him, Behold, there, there is a man of God in this city. There's a man who's held in honor. All that he says come true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. So they're, they're desperate. They are so desperate to find these donkeys. They're willing to go find a prophet, a man of God, to see if he can tell them where the donkeys are, right? That's how frustrated they are at this point. I mean, can you imagine if you lose your car keys and you look for that for an hour, how frustrated are you? Imagine looking for something for three days, sweating, you're tired, you're hungry. Later it says they had no bread left. They were out of money. They were done for, but yet they desperately, the servant has this one final idea. But the problem is, Saul knew the tradition was, if you're going to approach a prophet, you need to have something to offer them. You need to have a present, some money. And they had nothing left. Their bread was gone. To Saul's knowledge, they were broke at this point. They had run out of money. But verse 8 says, the servant answered Saul again, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. Now, The sentence of verse 8 doesn't really come through in the English Standard Version that I'm using because the language here in the original is more one of surprise, as if the servant is saying, I don't know where this came from, but a quarter shekel of silver is found in my bag. It's like when you think you're out of McDonald's french fries and there's that one tasty french fry left at the bottom of the bag, and you're like, a french fry is found at the bottom of the bag, right? It's like out of nowhere, there's this quarter shekel of silver found that they had no clue that they had. But now they have something that they can offer this prophet, this man of God, to ask him about the donkey. So they start walking up yet another hill, it says. they Verse 11, they went up the hill to the city. They've already been walking through all kinds of hilly terrain in Ephraim and other places. But they go up the hill, verse 11, they meet a young woman coming out to draw water. And they inquired of them, is the seer here? And one of the women answers, he is. Behold, he's, he's just ahead of you, but, but you need to hurry because he's getting ready to head to the high places. And if you're going to catch him before he heads out, you, you've got to double time it up to the city. And so they make it up to the city. And literally, as they are walking in the city, Samuel is walking out of the city, who we now know to be this man of God that they have been looking for. And he's going to have some incredible things to say to Saul. We'll look at that later. But He tells him eventually in that conversation when they meet him at the gate of the city in verse 20, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them for they have been found. And I'm sure Saul in that moment was, well, I've, there's three days of my life I'm never going to get back, right? I've been wandering around, wasting my time and just they randomly got found and we were the ones who were supposed to find them in the first place. Now, what a strange story chapter 9, verses 1 through 14 is. A random group of donkeys, we don't know how many are lost. Saul and his servant are sent by Kish on a fruitless and frustrating search mission where they exhausted all of their supplies. 
in a moment of last-minute desperation, Saul's servant remembered something he had heard about, a man of God who is in a city that they happen to be close to in that moment, and they find at the last second an adequate amount of money that they can pay this man of God so that they can ask him about their donkeys. That's it at this point. That's the story. I mean, it seems like such a frustrating experience for them, right? It's an experience that all of us can probably relate to in our lives. We've all had days where we feel like we're spinning our wheels and nothing productive is happening. We spend a week trying to figure something out and we don't get anywhere. They spent, Saul and his servants spent days on end accomplishing nothing except wandering around the land of Benjamin and Ephraim and using up the supplies they brought for their journey. The whole story seems random, right? Donkeys are lost. We don't know how. They don't know where the donkeys went to. They literally cover as much terrain as they possibly can to no avail. It all just seems like an enormous waste of time. And I'm sure Saul was going to dread returning home empty-handed which is why he was willing to keep looking even to the point of running out of supplies. And then they finally approach the man of God. That's one side of the story, right? A frustrating, wandering about search for some lost donkeys. But the view from the top, the viewpoint of heaven, tells a very different story. So let's look at the viewpoint of the divine. God sends a son to be anointed as king. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Now, let's just pause there. Do you hear what God says in verse 16? He is sending Saul to be anointed as king. Now, I don't know about you, but the story we just recounted doesn't sound a lot like God sending someone somewhere. It sounds to me like a jumbled, random mess. But yet, verse 16, God tells Samuel, I'm sending you someone, and that someone will be the first king of Israel. He tells Samuel, of course, he goes on, and the rest of verse 16 to tell him why he is sending him to make him king. He says, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God has heard the cries of his people, and he wants to raise up someone who will rescue them from the oppression of the Philistines. Now, We know from chapter 8 that Israel demanded a king. It was a misguided, misdirected, sinful request that they made to demand a king from God so that they could be like the nations. But even though that request was misguided, God is still willing to rescue his people and to bring a king to do it. And so God is sending Saul to be anointed by Samuel as king to rescue his people from the oppression of the Philistines. And so God puts his divine rescue plan into action by sending Saul to be anointed as king. So how does God start his divine rescue plan? He makes some donkeys get lost. He has some donkeys get lost. We don't know how, but what we do know is those donkeys are really good at getting lost. (laughs) They wandered either far enough away or they were well enough hidden to where Saul and his servant for three days wandering all over the place could not find them. No matter where they looked, 
God had them tucked away, hidden away, far enough away. We don't know how, but they were searching literally high up the hills and low in the valleys, everywhere they could go, trying to find these donkeys, and they could not find them. In fact, they were so desperate, as we mentioned, to find these donkeys, they were willing to go and ask a prophet, a man of God, if he could point them in the right direction so that he could find the donkeys. Now, think about it. God knew what it would take to get a man to ask for directions. I mean, let's be honest. Just Thursday, I was visiting Brandon in the hospital, and Chelsea, his wife, said, you know, she gave directions, instructions to all of us, including me. Go in to the front desk across the walkway from the parking garage, Ask them how to get to elevator C and go up to the third floor. Guess what I didn't bother to do? I didn't ask. Because it can't be hard to find elevator C. So I spent the next 15 minutes wandering around the hospital trying to find elevator C. Now, I eventually stumbled on it, but I almost asked for directions, okay? I came that close. But seriously, the point is God wanted them at their wits end. He wanted them desperate or else they would have never even thought to ask a prophet about where to find some donkeys. And so God, in his sovereignty, had the donkeys hidden away, had them wandering around. Further, the timing was exact. Samuel was not in the city. He was out doing other things. He had just returned to the city. And so he had Saul his servant wandering around in such a way that they would arrive at the city at the right time. At the exact same time, Samuel would arrive at the city so that Saul and Samuel would meet at the entrance to the city. Exact, impeccable timing. And we thought these guys were just wandering around aimlessly without a clue. And yet here's another piece of the plan that we're not told about. We don't know how God did this, but Saul didn't know about this man of God, right? When the, when the servant mentions it, Saul's, it wasn't his idea. He didn't know. The servant is who tells him about the man of God. So how did the servant know that a man of God was in the city to begin with? I have no idea. God sovereignly ensured that this servant would know that this man of God, Samuel, was in the city. And not only that, if you recall at the beginning of the story, Kish tells Saul, go find the donkeys and take one of the young men with you. And Saul just happens to, by God's sovereign direction, pick the one that knows about the man of God in the city so that when they are nearby at their wit's end, not knowing what else to do, he would say to him, let's go find the prophet in the city. Let's go find the man of God. But then again, remember, Saul said, we have nothing to give him. We have nothing to offer the man of God when we find him. And yet, out of nowhere, the Hebrew literally says something like, a quarter shekel of silver is found with me. Here it is. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but now we have something that we can offer him. Of course, we know that God put the quarter shekel of silver in the bag, hidden away till the exact right moment when they needed to find it so that they wouldn't spend it on bread or something else, but so that they could have it, so that they would go to the city, so that they would meet Samuel. And so Saul arrives at the city. God provides the women coming out at the exact right time. He provides the woman who will say the exact right things, who tells them to hurry and make their way up the hill to the city. And they meet Samuel as he comes out of the city at the exact right time. And Samuel says to Saul, I'm heading up to the sacrifice. You need to come with me and you are going to dine with us this evening. 
And he has some significant things to say to Samuel there in that context. He says something significant is going to happen to you, Saul. Samuel tells Saul that he is the one to whom will come all that is desirable in Israel. And Saul is so confused by that because he's from a lowly tribe, a small tribe, a small family. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's been wandering around for three days looking for donkeys. And now this prophet is saying, all Israel wants to be you right now. So go ahead of me and we're going to eat together. And by the way, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. They've served their purpose. You're here now. So when Saul sits down to the feast in verses 22 to 24, Samuel had set aside the best portion for Saul, this man who just a few moments ago was at his wits end, desperate, not knowing where to turn out of money, out of bread. And now he is feasting with 30 others in the house of the prophet. And as you can see in verse 27, Samuel is ready to make known to Saul the word of God. You see that verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Now, next week, we'll dive into chapter 10 and we will see this word that comes from God where Samuel anoints Saul as king, the one who will rescue his people from the oppression of the Philistines. But the driving point of chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, is that Saul was sent by God. He was sent by God. Even something as grand as bringing a son to be anointed as king, to rescue his people from the oppression of their enemies, the Philistines, is brought to pass by causing a few donkeys to get lost. You see, this passage helps us see that even though it seems to be random, odd, ordinary mess of events in our lives, that God is doing something we can't see on the top side of the tapestry. And so let's conclude this morning by reflecting on the strange providence of God. You see, the temptation is to read this story and to think this is only how God works in significant historical events. In other words, it's tempting to make the only truth from this passage be that God works in mysterious ways when he's ready to anoint a king or when he's rescued to bring about a miraculous deliverance of his people. In those times, God works in mysterious ways, but not in other times. But what I want to be sure you see is how chapter 9 is just one more additional piece of biblical truth that shows us that this is how God always operates. He is at work in your life and in my life in the most unexpected ways for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. We saw this just, just a few weeks ago in our Cornerstone class. We, we have a class that meets at 9 o'clock before the service. We're currently doing systematic theology. If we would invite any of you to come and be a part of that. And just a few weeks ago, we were looking at the doctrine of God's providence and we were reminded that God rules over this world, that he is sovereign over it. Even in the most seemingly random events, even things like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, that says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. A lot was essentially our modern day equivalent of casting a lot would be rolling the dice. The dice are cast onto the table, but it's every outcome it's every outcome is a decision from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. The point of the biblical author there is to say even the most seemingly random thing you can think of, like casting lots, like rolling dice, is under the sovereign rule of God. 
which is why in our family, we always keep people humble when they win a board game and we say, God just wanted you to win, right? He, he controlled the toss of the dice on that particular turn. And while that may be difficult to accept and to wrap our minds around, it must be true if something like Romans 8.28 is going to be true in your life. When Romans 8.28 says to us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When it says all things work together for good, it means all things. It means the roll of the dice. It means the most seemingly random things that happen in your life are for your eternal and ultimate good. Even donkeys getting lost, running out of bread, thinking you're out of money. He's at work in all of it for your good and for the glory of his name. Now, as I mentioned, most often we are not going to get to see the top-down view of the tapestry that he's weaving of our life. We don't know what God is up to in the midst of our frustrations and our sadness and even our suffering. But it's stories like this in the Bible that give us a sneak preview, that let us peer into the ways of God to trust that he is at work even in the frustrating moments. You see, we may pray for God to send us somewhere. God, make it clear where you want me to go. And we're sitting back and we're waiting for the heavens to open up and a spotlight to come out and an angel to descend and tell us exactly where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. And we say that is being sent by God. But here's the reality. More often than not, you were sent by what seems to be random events happening in your life. By things like donkeys getting lost or maybe to bring it to more uh, modern context, maybe it's things like getting laid off from your job. What a horrible, difficult thing for anyone to have to go through. But maybe that's God's way of saying, I'm sending you somewhere else. I have something else in plan for your life. Or maybe it's a seeming random recommendation for, from a friend to take a new job or to do something new with your life. But there it is. God brings them to make this recommendation to you to get your mind turning that way. Or maybe a family member is suffering and you have to move for them or whatever it may be. And it may seem like this can't be God's plan for my life, but it very well could be God sending you, intending to accomplish something in you and through you for your eternal good and for the glory of his name. In other words, just because it seems natural or random or ordinary does not mean the supernatural hand of God is not behind it. It was the supernatural divine rescue plan of God to make the donkeys wander off, to send Saul to meet Samuel, to be anointed as king, to rescue his people. So as we step into a new year, I would encourage you to ask the Lord to give you a fresh divine perspective on your life. Ask him to do the supernatural work in your heart of freeing you. And look, I need this too. To do the supernatural work in your life of freeing you from grumbling and complaining and instead causing you to rest in the strange providence of God. If he is working all things for our good, then he deserves praise for all of it. Now, that does not mean you don't cry and you don't grieve and you don't weep with those who weep. You don't call out to God in moments where you feel forgotten and forsaken. That is not the appropriate response to just ignore the hurt and the pain that God's sovereignty can bring to your life. But what I am saying is it allows us, this perspective allows us to rest and trust that he is weaving something beautiful, even though we can't see it from this side of glory. I'm reminded of passages like Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. 
Proverbs 16:9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Even through evil and suffering, God is divinely leading our lives every moment of every day for our good and for the glory of his name. And there is no greater example of this than the cross of Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Or Acts 2.23, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. The men who put Jesus on the cross, who, who unjustly convicted him, an innocent man, they were evil, lawless men who will be held accountable for crucifying the eternal Son of God. Yet their actions were sovereignly ruled over by our heavenly father to secure your eternity with him. This is what we rest in, that we've been redeemed by Jesus and that we are therefore kept by him. And so as the end of Romans 8 tells us, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Every moment of your life, he is loving you. You cannot be cut off from it. You are not forgotten. Even though, even though sometimes, if not often, you're going to be looking at the underside of the blanket of the picture he's creating, and it's not going to make any sense. Listen, as I mentioned at the beginning, when my father passed away, that was a dark black thread of grief through the tapestry of my life. But I know that there are dozens, if not hundreds of things for my good that he has accomplished through the pulling of that thread. And there's a beautiful picture I will get to look at one day. And I could speculate about what it is, and I could be wrong, I could be right. But I'm fairly certain if my dad would have still been alive when I graduated from high school, it's a long story, but I probably would have ended up at a different school than where I went. And then I wouldn't have met my wife, and I wouldn't have my five beautiful children today. It did mean the black thread wasn't one of grief and hurt and pain, but it meant God was weaving it and he creates something beautiful out of it. And he's sovereign over every moment. And a story like 1 Samuel chapter 9 is meant to remind you of that, that even when you feel like it's a random day of pointless, meaningless effort, looking for some lost donkeys, he was sending a king to rescue his people. This is our God. And this is what we can rest in. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are sovereign over our lives. Father, we are thankful that you give us these glimpses into the work of your hands. Father, we know if not for stories like this, passages like this that you tell us in your word, we would be so confused about the things that happen in our life. We are often, Father, in places and situations where we feel like you have indeed forgotten us. We are filled with hurt and pain and grief. We are almost undone. But Father, I pray that you would use a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 9 to remind us, even in the moments of confusion, even when we're looking from the underside and it all seems to be a mess and it makes no sense to us, that it makes perfect sense to you. And you've called us to trust you and that you are weaving together 
a beautiful picture of history of our lives and of this universe for our good and the eternal glory of your name. Help us to trust you in this coming year. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.